the latest in tax credit news, this is a special Opportunity Zones edition of Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Thank you for downloading this bonus podcast. In this podcast, I want to cover 20 issues that we at Novogratik think are worthy to track in this second tranche of Opportunity Zones guidance. Five months ago, the Treasury Department issued its first tranche of proposed regulations concerning the Opportunity Zones, or OZ, tax incentive. They released 74 pages of regulations, a revenue ruling, an updated Q&A document, and a draft of Internal Revenue Service Form 8996, the form governing your election to be a qualified opportunity fund. Now, in the next few weeks, the second tranche of regulations will be released. The second tranche will include a request for comments, which will be followed by a public hearing. So, what will the second set of guidance include? The issues addressed will likely include many of those that were presented at the most recent public hearing and or were included in comment letters, as well as Treasury's assessment of areas that are most in need of immediate guidance. So we have a summary of 20 Opportunity Zones guidance areas that Novogratz is closely tracking as we await the second tranche of guidance. How these 20 issues are addressed will go a long way in determining the success of the Opportunity Zones incentive, the success in facilitating the investment of equity capital in real estate and operating businesses in distressed communities. So in preparing this list, we segregated it into six broad categories. And this podcast does assume a certain working knowledge of the Opportunity Zones incentive. So the six categories that we're going to go through here are compliance testing and calculations, those issues related to operating businesses, and then third, those related to real estate. Fourth, one issue particularly important for the renewable energy community. Fifth, a particular issue for consolidated corporations. And then sixth, issues related to fund management. So let's start with compliance testing and calculations. The first issue deals with the 90% and 70% asset test. Last year's proposed regulations required that Qualified Opportunity Funds, or QAFs, and Qualified Opportunity Zone Businesses use generally accepted accounting principles, or GAAP, to calculate compliance with the 90% and 70% asset tests if they had applicable financial statements. We at Novogratik and the Opportunity Zones Working Group believe that mandating the use of GAAP to value tangible property is not a suitable valuation method for many reasons. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons here on this podcast, but you can find an additional discussion on page 8 of Novogratik's Opportunity Zones Working Group letter that was dated December 28, 2018. Now, the final regulations, we believe, should allow qualified opportunity funds, as well as qualified opportunities on businesses, to elect to use unadjusted cost basis to value tangible property. That's regardless as to whether or not they have an applicable financial statement prepared on a gap basis. Now, the second, or the other, compliance testing calculations issue that we've presented to Treasury at a public hearing, and we also are closely monitoring, is when must a qualified opportunity on business begin? Now, you may know that in order for investments in corporations and partnerships to qualify as Opportunity Zone property, OZ property, and this would be those investments by Opportunity Funds into such corporations and partnerships, in order to qualify, 
the statute requires that as of the time of, that such interest was acquired, that such corporation or partnership was a qualified opportunity zone business, or in the case of a new corporation or partnership, that such corporation or partnership was organized for purposes of being a qualified opportunity zone business. Now, Treasury guidance we believe is needed that provides new businesses that are being organized for the purpose of being a qualified opportunity zone business, as well as existing businesses that are expanding within or into opportunity zones, they need time to acquire and or improve tangible property and to put such property to active use in opportunity zones. Now, these are two issues that my partner John Shreddy and I testified at at the public hearing on the first tranche of Opportunity Zones regulations. So those two issues make up our first broad set of issues. The next set of issues relate to operating businesses. Our third issue deals with something that's gotten a lot of public attention, a lot of press attention. That has to do with measuring whether or not 50% of gross income of a business is in an Opportunity Zone. The proposed regulations do contain a requirement that at least 50% of the gross income of a qualified opportunity zone business be derived from the active conduct of a trader business in the opportunity zone. Practitioners, like those of us at Novogratian Company, need further guidance on how to measure that. We believe that Treasury should provide a safe harbor for the 50% test that could include such things as the location of employee services, the location of tangible property, as well as the location where economic value is created. Most importantly, this determination should not be solely based on the location of the customers of the business. Now, we do have additional discussion of this issue in an Opportunity Zones Working Group letter to the IRS dated November 26, 2018. So that's the third issue. The fourth issue deals with leased property that's particularly important to operating businesses. Now, under the Opportunity Zone statute, Opportunity Zone property has to be purchased. However, this is essentially all test to determine if qualified Opportunity Zone businesses qualify. There, they refer to tangible property that's owned or leased by such business. There's a little vagaries here as to how you treat leased property. So guidance is going to be needed. Guidance is needed as to how to value leased property for purposes of the substantially all test. There's also the question as to how to apply the original use requirement for leased property, since in many cases leased property will have been used potentially by the party that you're leasing it from. Once again, for additional information on this issue, go to the Opportunity Zones Working Group November 26, 2018 letter to the IRS. Now, the fifth issue, dealing particularly with operating businesses, is that the proposed regulations require that a substantial portion of the intangible property of a qualified Opportunity Zone business be used in the active conduct of a trader business in the Opportunity Zone. This intangible property issue demands guidance regarding the meaning of the term substantial. What is the substantial use? Also, second, we need to understand the meaning of the phrase used in the active conduct of a trader business. How do you determine when intangible property is used in the active conduct of a trader business? Third, within this intangible property issue, we need a method for measuring the portion of intangible property that's used in a business. And fourth, 
we need a method for determining whether a business's intangible property is used in the OZ, in the Opportunity Zone. Once again, we do have additional discussion on this issue on page 16 of the Opportunity Zone's Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. So those four questions around intangible property make up issue number five. Issue number six relates to a reasonable working capital definition, once again related to operating businesses. Proposed Opportunity Zone regulations created a reasonable working capital safe harbor for qualified opportunities on businesses to acquire, construct, and or substantially improve tangible property, clearly asset-focused. However, new and expanding operating businesses also need working capital to cover expenditures that will be deducted, expenditures such as payroll, inventory, and occupancy costs during their startup phase. A similar working capital safe harbor is needed for operating expenditures similar to that for the acquisition, construction, or improvement of tangible property. We do have a discussion on this in page 12 of the Opportunities on Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. And the seventh and last of our operating business issues deals with the substantial improvement and aggregation of assets. That's a mouthful. So what do I mean? Well, qualified opportunity on business property must have its original use in an opportunity zone with a qualified opportunity fund or a qualified opportunity zone business. That's the original use test. However, if you can't meet the original use test, then the qualified opportunity fund or the qualified opportunity zone business must substantially improve the property. So what is substantial improvement? Property is treated as substantially improved only if during any 30-month period, beginning after the date of acquisition of such property, additions to basis with respect to such property exceed an amount equal to the adjusted basis of the property at the beginning of the 30-month period. So, to facilitate the qualification of an existing operating business as a qualified opportunity on business, it would be quite helpful if at the election of the taxpayer, the substantial improvement requirement could be met by an operating business on an aggregate basis, where the acquisition of tangible property over any 30-month period exceeds the aggregate basis of existing tangible property held by the business at the beginning of the 30-month period. This is as opposed to having to track individual improvements of individual pieces of property, and having to dissect what capitalized costs you're incurring and whether or not they're improving a particular piece of property or they're considered a new separate piece of property. It would avoid a lot of accounting headaches and allow a lot more businesses, operating businesses, in opportunity zones to be eligible for the incentive. You can find more discussion on this issue by reviewing page two of the Opportunity Zones Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. So those first seven issues cover compliance, testing, and calculations, as well as issues specific to operating businesses. Now let's turn to real estate. First, one area, number eight in our list of 20, has to do with refinancing in excess of basis. We're expecting and hoping to see guidance on the tax consequences of debt finance distributions, that being from a partnership qualified opportunity fund, particularly debt finance distributions due to an increase in the fair market value of a business. 
At issue is whether such distributions, basically if you can refinance out the increase in the value of an asset, whether or not distributions attributable to that refinance value trigger any recognition of deferred gain or otherwise affect the qualification for the 10-year hold fair market value step-up election. This is a critical issue for real estate businesses, and you can find more detail in page 8 of the Opportunity Zones Working Group's July 16th letter to the IRS. Now, a second item in the real estate section, number nine overall, has to do with measuring and determining whether or not you need to substantially improve unimproved land. It remains unclear whether unimproved land needs to be substantially improved to meet the substantial improvement test. And we're looking for Treasury to settle that issue. Now, it is clear that when you buy land with a building on it, you can ignore land in determining whether or not the building has been substantially improved. It's not so clear how you treat unimproved land with respect to the substantial improvement test. Once again, you can go to page 9 of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's November 26th letter to the IRS for more information on this substantial improvement requirement for unimproved land issue. So another issue, our issue number 10, that's of interest particularly to those in the real estate community, has to do with original use requirement and vacant buildings. The proposed regulations in the preamble asked whether or not some period of abandonment or underuse of tangible property should erase a property's history of prior use in the opportunity zone. And if so, should such a fallow period enable subsequent productive use of the tangible property to qualify as original use and consequently not have to be substantially improved? So, to facilitate the improvement of vacant or underused property, we believe, the Opportunity Zones Working Group believes, that prior use should be disregarded for property that's vacant or idle for at least one year. For additional discussion of this issue, you can go to page one of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. Now, item number 11, and something that once again is particularly of interest to those in the real estate community, has to do with the treatment of Internal Revenue Code Section 1231 gains. So, what's a 1231 gain? Well, Section 1231 gains are those gains that are realized from the sale of property used in a trader business. However, Section 1231 gains have to be netted with Section 1231 losses to determine the amount, if any, of capital gains that the taxpayer has. Basically, if a taxpayer has net losses from property used in a trader business, then you have an ordinary loss. If a partner or owner of property has net gains from property used in a trader business, those net 12 through 1 gains are generally going to be treated as capital gains. So this brings into question when the 180-day window to invest Section 1231 capital gains begins. And that's because you may not know if those Section 1231 gains are going to be capital gains uh, until the end of the year when you've netted them with any 1231 capital losses. It also brings into question whether partnerships can invest 1231 gains into a QAF, into a QAF opportunity fund, since that partnership doesn't necessarily have any netted capital gains. The partnership would have to allocate out to the individual partners those 1231 gains 
And then at the partner level, they'll determine if those 1231 gains become capital gains out to their net or with their losses. Once again, for an additional discussion of this little bit more complex issue, see page four of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. So there are two other issues that I want to cover in this real estate section, issues 12 and 13. Issue 12 deals with the 31-month working capital safe harbor that I've mentioned earlier. The proposed regulations do provide qualified returns on businesses a 31-month safe harbor to hold funds that are used for the acquisition, construction, or improvement of tangible property. However, there's no provision to extend that 31-month period for issues that are beyond the taxpayer's control. Now, it's not uncommon for real estate and other developments to experience delays that are beyond the business's control, such as delayed permitting and other municipal approvals, contract disputes, supply embargoes, labor stoppages, extreme weather events, national disasters. So we believe, and the Opportunity Zones Working Group believes, that additional flexibility is needed to give investors comfort that businesses experiencing these unforeseen delays wouldn't be disqualified. They basically get longer than the 31 months. For additional discussion of this issue, see page 12 of the Opportunity Zones Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. Then the 13th issue relates to the definition of active business, active conduct of a trader business, and most particularly with respect to residential rental property and triple net leases. Guidance is needed as to whether renting property pursuant to a triple net lease can be, can qualify as an active trader business. And I think we also need final confirmation that operating residential rental property can be an active trader business. For additional discussion, do see page 10 of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's November 26th letter to the IRS. So those issues make up our real estate section. Issue number 14 relates to renewable energy, most notably depreciation recapture under Section 1245. Now, under the general Opportunity Zone's rules, the sale of a partnership interest in a qualified opportunity fund, if you've held it for 10 years, will generally result in no net gain on the appreciation uh, in the value of that interest. That's because of the 10-year fair market value election. However, if the Qualified Opportunity Fund has a direct or indirect partnership interest in depreciated personal property, it's unclear if the investor must recognize ordinary income recapture and a corresponding capital loss. Now, this is because rules under Section 1245 treat the sale of depreciated personal property up to the original acquisition price as ordinary income, basically recapturing depreciation deductions claimed as ordinary deductions, recapturing those as ordinary income. And when you sell a partnership interest, there's a look-to provision. So this issue of Section 1245 recapture on the sale of a partnership interest after it's been held for 10 years is particularly relevant for the renewable energy community. Now, our 15th issue relates to our section on corporations, and it has to do with the consolidated group rules. This has to do with corporations that are filing consolidated returns, a return that consolidates a number of individual corporations all rolling up into the parent. Now, neither the Opportunity Zone statute nor the regulations 
address whether or not the capital gains of one corporation that's a member of a consolidated return group of corporations, whether or not that capital gain can be treated as a capital gain of other members of the consolidated return group, such that gains could be aggregated under a single deferral election by the consolidated return group. Guidance is needed as to the proper treatment of QAF investments within a consolidated group. We did discuss this in the Opportunity Zones Working Group letter on page 10. That would be the December 28th letter. So our sixth major area has to do with fund management. And this is our items 16 through 20. And we'll start with number 16, which is reasonable time to invest in the working capital allowance. Qualified opportunity funds need time to make investments. And the Opportunity Zone statute explicitly states that Treasury's guidance is needed to provide a reasonable time for a qualified opportunity fund to reinvest the return of capital from the sale of investments in Opportunity Zone property. Well, likewise, qualified opportunity funds need adequate time to invest, not just to reinvest. They need adequate time to assemble and underwrite initial Opportunity Zone property investments. Now, Treasury regulations did provide qualified opportunity zone businesses a safe harbor that allowed funds to be held for up to 31 months if there's a written plan in place that follows specific requirements. A similar safe harbor, like provided for opportunity zone businesses, should be provided for qualified opportunity funds. This was discussed on page one of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's November 26th letter to the IRS. So issue 17 deals with interim gains at the fund level. The first tranche of Opportunity Zone's guidance contained a question from Treasury. They asked whether interim gains should be subject to tax. Now the Opportunity Zone's working group and a number of other groups believe interim gains, those are gains realized by the Opportunity Fund when they sell Opportunity Zone property during the period of time before an investor sells their interest in the fund, that such gains should not be subject to tax to the extent that they're reinvested in qualified Opportunity Zone property within a reasonable period of time. That is an open issue. Treasury has asked for guidance uh, and comments on that provision and that question. But I will say that if interim gains are subject to tax, then there is an ancillary question. And that has to do with whether or not a partnership that was operating as a qualified fund could make an election on behalf of its investors to basically reinvest that capital, that gain, in a new business a new or new qualified zone business property and thus not need to distribute out the investor then contribute back in and have that investor not have to pay current taxation on such gains. So these are questions that need guidance and we discussed these in the Opportunity Zones Working Group's March 9, 2018 letter in page 2 of the Opportunity Zones Working Group November 26, 2018 letter. Issue number 18 relates to time to reinvest interim gains for purposes of the 90% test. And this is a pretty straightforward question. I've already referred to it briefly in a prior question. And that has to do with qualified zone property that's sold for cash by an opportunity fund. It is no longer a qualified investment for the 90% test, but the OZ statute does allow reasonable time to reinvest, and Treasury needs to provide what a reasonable period of time is. And we believe that the letter sh- that the time period should be at least one year. And for additional discussion, you can see page one of the Opportunity Zone Working Group's November 26th letter to the IRS. And then issue 19 has also gotten a lot of attention. 
And that has to do with an exit approach and a wind-down period for opportunity funds. The Opportunity Zone statute provides this fair market value step-up benefit, but that only applies if a taxpayer sells this investment in an opportunity fund. That requirement, though, is counter to the way funds generally unwind. Treasury could issue rules that provide that if a qualified opportunity fund disposes of assets after 10 years pursuant to plan of liquidation, then the qualified opportunity fund investors could treat such sales in a manner equivalent to selling an interest in a QAF or in a qualified opportunity fund. So we look forward to seeing if the next set of regulations do address this issue. And then our last issue here on fund management deals with appreciated property and carried interests. The statute and proposed regulations for opportunity zones do not specify whether or not investments in qualified opportunity funds must be cash or whether that they could also include property or services. Guidance is definitely needed here. And if eligible investments can include contributions of property, then anti-abuse rules are going to be needed to regulate contributions of appreciative property. We did discuss this in or on page 20 of the Opportunity Zones Working Group's December 28th letter to the IRS. So that concludes our list of 20 issues. Let me first by congratulating you by making your way through the list, our list of 20 Opportunity Zones guidance areas that we at Nevergradic are closely tracking as we await the release of the second tranche of regulations. Now this list is obviously not an exhaustive list, but how these 20 issues are addressed will go a long way in determining the success of the Opportunity Zones incentive in facilitating the investment of equity capital in real estate and operating businesses in distressed communities. Now, as I mentioned, it's not an exhaustive list. So I would like to ask you, what issues would you add to the list? What should be 21 or 22? Please email your ideas to cpas at novaco.com. I would like to also encourage you to join us in Denver, Colorado at the Novogratic 2019 Opportunity Zone Spring Conference being held Thursday, April 25th and Friday, April 26th. We do also have a Basics Day, an Opportunity Zones Basics Day, on Wednesday, April 24th. At the conference, you can join Opportunity Zones investors, fund managers, businesses, community leaders, and advisors to discuss the pending IRS guidance, as well as other timely Opportunity Zones topics. To register, just go to the Opportunity Zones Resource Center, and on the right side, you can click on our events, and you'll quickly find the Novograd 2019 Opportunity Zone Spring Conference. I do encourage you to register now, as the prior conference did sell out. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This Opportunity Zones edition of Tax Credit Tuesday has been brought to you by Novogratik. A new Tax Credit Tuesday podcast is available every Tuesday at www.novaco.com podcast and on iTunes. Novogratik is a national professional services organization that provides services that include certified public accounting, valuation, and consulting. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com slash services.